There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm flying solo today because everybody seems to have abandoned me, but that's fine because I have a good friend of mine, so I'm not going to be totally alone. I've got with me today Dan Kazita, who has been on this podcast before to tell us his wonderful story about his llama and obviously his previous, <laughs> his previous book, Toxic, which was about nerve agents uh, and the history of them. But this time around, he's gone down a slightly different road and he's come to talk to us about his new book, which is something that I've been begging to have on the podcast for so long. And finally, someone answered my prayer. And that's to do about the Baltic resistance against the Nazis and the Soviets. The book is called The Forest Brotherhood. Welcome, Dan. Well, well, thank you for having me. And you're not completely alone. You got me. You may not, I, you may not deserve me, but you got me. <laughs> oh, you a sweetheart. So, you know, I've been trying to get someone to come and talk about the Baltics. We've had very little and the Baltics have been pissing me off. So finally, we can do something that I've been trying to get onto this podcast for a while, even though we're talking about slightly more modern history, but that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. So out of curiosity, I mean, I know this answer, but I think our listeners deserve to know the answer. Why have you suddenly gone from nerve agents and something that you are a complete and utter specialist at to something that is not completely out of your comfort zone, but well, you know, a couple I've of gone, steps out of it? I've gone back to my roots, in fact. You you know the story, but for the benefit of the listeners, I'm actually half Lithuanian. My name really probably should be Danielle's Kachetas. <laughs> yes, which is what I started calling you at the beginning. You're like, no, no, and it works for me. Every time, every time I'm every time I'm east of about uh, Warsaw and east, I'm Kacheta. It's okay. Uh, yes, I'm half Lithuanian, and I grew up with these stories, and they were just stories, and it was not really written about. And the Baltic states were written out of history, but they weren't written out of my history. So it was like this black spot. And I spent much of my life, you know, really annoyed at that. I even wrote some papers on it. Uh, I even had a paper published as an article as an undergraduate in 1988 on the subject. Um, oh, 19, did you say 1988? 1988. The, my first publication is in 1988 when I was 19 years old. I was an undergraduate at Texas Christian University. And I got published in Lituanus, the Lithuanian American Journal of uh, Studies, you know. Not good, to make good, you feel old, I was two in 1988. That's all right. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I get mostly ignored. But, you know, there's a family trait, I would say, 
apologies to any Lithuanian listeners, but maybe, maybe, maybe this rings home. There's this problem I would call it. I refer to it as Lithuanian junk man syndrome. I don't throw things away. My father never throws things away. My dad never throws anything away. My granddad never threw anything away. And in particular, I never threw away a single scrap of paper that had anything on it about Lithuanian history. So I've got this vast back catalog of stuff that eventually reached critical mass and, more importantly, an opportunity because all of a sudden people are actually caring about this part of the world again. Not for what I would call the right reason, because there's a big war. I would just rather assume that people would be interested in the Baltic states because, well, they're interesting places uh, and we don't know much about it. But, hey, um, never let a good crisis go to waste. So uh, I've got my book and my book is relevant for a lot of reasons that we can probably talk uh, talk to uh, later on. So that's how I came to write it. And the immediate I mean, the immediate cause is my lovely publisher basically had a bit of a, you know, all right, guys and gals, what have you got? Ukraine's being invaded. Uh, what do you got? So I pitched the book, and next thing you know, I had a contract. And more importantly, there's an awful lot of archival material that is now much more accessible than there was 20 or 30 years ago. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff you can dig into. And, you know, the Baltic states are not technical backwaters. I mean, Skype was invented in, in, in Estonia, for example. Uh, a whole lot of this stuff is digitized. There's huge amounts online now. And even though my grasp of Baltic languages isn't great, guess what? The translation tools are, are, are much better. So there you have it. I've got to say, not many people do talk about, I'd say, Eastern and Central Europe up until really the Ukrainian war. And this kind of opened up discussions and literature and academia to speaking yeah. about it. Because at the moment, if you do talk about Eastern and Central Europe, it's Russia. Russia, Russia, oh, yeah. Russia, Russia, Russia. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I raised the question early on in this book, why don't we call Finland a Baltic state? And even the Finns scratch their head at that. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Let's not let's let's not let's not get onto a Twitter spat. You're terribly notorious for that. Uh, notorious. Drag... No, no, notorious. All publicity is good, I discovered. But yes. <laughs> don't drag me into your Twitter spats, even though I sometimes drag you into mine. And yeah, you drag me into yours. <laughs> so, so, so where do you want to go with this story? Because there's a story to be told here. And it's one that people don't know. I mean, first of all, tell us what the Baltic states are, because some people on this podcast may not actually know what we mean when we refer to the Baltic states. I know it's a really simple question. Okay. All right. You got this thing called the Baltic Sea, which sits sort of, you know, on on, if you look at the sort of northeastern Europe on the map, you get this big body of water, uh, the Baltic Sea. And on the left side of it, you got Sweden. And on the bottom of it, you got Poland and Germany. On the sort of top right bit of it, you got Finland, but then you got these three countries um, that are between Poland and Finland. All right, so working south from Finland, you got Estonia, then Latvia, and then Lithuania. These three countries, not terribly big, but not tiny, tiny, tiny either, uh, all have quite a distinct culture, a distinct history. Uh, there's a lot of things in common between them, but there's also a lot of differences. Uh, each one sort of looks to a somewhat different uh, heritage in the past. Uh, and so that's what we're talking about. Um, I'm going to go and sort of start at the bottom again uh, with Lithuania. Lithuania was a large place in the Middle Ages. It was a grand duchy that was much bigger than current, current, day, current present day Lithuania. So it harkens back to this ancient history, last pagan nation in Europe, converted only in the 1300s. Uh, 
and it has largely been a Western-facing Grand Duchy once it once it had that conversion to Christianity. But strong relationships with Poland. It became conjoined with Poland um, through a dynastic merger. So for for many 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 years, the Pol uh, Pol the Polish Lithuanian Confederation or Commonwealth was effectively like Austria Hungary. It was it was uh, it was it was a a big country, but had sort of two different crowns, and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland were technically separate, but the same person held both offices. Uh, and it faced Eastern enemies. It faced uh, it faced Tatars. It faced uh, it faced Russians. Uh, it faced some Western enemies early on, uh, Teutonic Knights, who were well tired of trying to convert these pagans and decided, well, we're going to keep converting them, even though they've been converted. So there was a war against the Teutonic Knights. Um, and so Lithuania has this history, and that history gradually fades as uh, as time goes on. And you know the Polish the Polish and Lithuanian Confederation, as you will, gradually gets salami sliced out of existence. And the last partition of Poland is in 1795. Lithuania disappears off the map. It's just an outpost of Tsarist Russia then. Now well, that's it. How many countries disappeared just because of Russia? Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yes, Lithuania has disappeared because of Russia before. So the, uh, every Lithuanian gets the, uh, uh, the 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 Ukrainian existential angst. Uh, the next two countries north, uh, Latvia. Uh, Latvia. The Latvians speak a Indo-European language that is similar to Lithuanian. Uh, however, uh, quite early on, they were conquered by crusading German knights. These Teutonic knights, uh, the Livonian order, conquered them converted them to Catholicism, and basically this place was a, for lack of a better term, a colonial holding of, of Germanic knights. Same thing with the Estonians. The difference with the Estonians being that they are a fundamentally, ethnically, and linguistically different people. Uh, they're cousins to the Finns. Estonian is a complex, you know, Finno-Ugric language uh, with lots of noun declensions and no prepositions. It's really hard to get your head around. Uh, but both of those countries had, at various points, domination by Swedes and uh, Swedes and 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 Germans. So the Protestant Reformation came through, and then they became Lutheran. So while the, the Lithuanians were Roman Catholic, like their Polish neighbors. So again, uh, they got salami sliced off the map a little bit earlier than 1795, uh, and got taken as a, as a result of basically wars that uh, Russia was having with, uh, with, with the Swedes. Uh, and there, there you get it. There, there you get it. The situation, small countries caught between bigger countries. In this case, Sweden was the big country. Swedes don't like to admit that they had a colonial empire. Uh, they did. It was in some kind of senses, you could call it Finland. Um, in other senses, at various times, it was pits of Estonia and Latvia. And, and Poland. And Poland. Well, yes, the whole, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, the problem with an elected monarch is sometimes you got to live with the guy that you elect. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so these countries all disappeared off the map and got subsumed into Tsarist Russia. Well, Tsarist Russia collapsed, as we all know, in 1917. Uh, and everywhere from Finland all the way down to you know Moldova, uh, and to a lesser extent the Caucasus as well, there was a free-for-all of captive nations trying to uh, regain their independence, uh, achieve their, na uh, their 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 national status. Uh, some places were more successful than others. Uh, you know, 
Poland, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia all got back onto the map. Uh, Ukraine back on the map only for a very short period of time. Belarus for a few weeks. Uh, the Georgians for a little while. Um, but also the same thing's going on in what was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Czechoslovakia comes out of that, this strange thing that came to be called Yugoslavia. So anyway, new nations are back on the map. And so let's and stick with this. You're 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 already on the topic, right? So First World War mm. happens, new nations are now formed. You've got new Poland, new Lithuania, Latvia, mm. um, like you said, briefly Ukraine, briefly Belarus. What is happening post-war? Because the history here goes hand in hand yeah. to pretty much what I've been talking. So anybody who's been listening to my poll positions will know about interwar Poland and yeah. how much I talk yeah. about it. Because they okay. all they they literally similar but very different at the same time. Yes, all three of them get uh, very democratic constitutions. You could say almost that, particularly Latvia and Estonia, suffered from a surplus of democracy. And that uh, there were, it was the threshold to set up a political party was very low. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of political parties. It was um, they had numerous parliaments and numerous uh, coalitions. Um, you know, Latvian governments lasted something like nine months on average. Uh, similar in Estonia, uh, Lithuania a little more stable. Lithuania, Lithuania suffered badly from, dare I say it, this uh, frozen conflict with with Poland. Uh, you know, there was a big, you know, um, Poland and Lithuania had a, we could probably do a whole episode on this one. That, oh my could, God, let's do it. Oh yeah, we'll do that. We'll save it. But there was a brief war followed by uh, 17, 18 years of anxiety and the, the, the city that, uh, the city that Lithuania looked at as its ancient capital, Vilnius, Vilno, uh, whatever you want to call it, we could call it either, um, is no longer in Lithuanian hands. The Lithuanians have to set up a provisional capital in Kaunas. Uh, and, it, and so there's bad relations between Lithuania and its southern neighbors. So Lithuania sees itself at first sandwiched between two neighbors it doesn't like, and then two neighbors it doesn't like are uh, the Poles and the Soviets. Um, you know, but in all case, all three cases, you get a gradual slide into authoritarianism. And now it's a common sort of Soviet propaganda trope to say that these interwar uh, republics were, were just fascists. They, they they weren't, you know, the word fascism is thrown around, but we're not. I'm not gonna... in here because like the West, people from the West, America and everything else. And I really need to underline this. They don't seem to understand. Right. That mm. at this time period in the interwar period, not only are these countries like it's a birth of a brand new country. Oh right? yeah. So yeah, oh, yeah. your borders are going to be changing, and 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 Brits and even the French, even the Spanish and the Americans don't understand what it is with a border change. And every single couple of months, every year, the yeah. borders are constantly shifting. Mm. So the borders that you see in 1918 are not oh, the same yeah. as 1920. That are not the same as 19. 39 when the Soviets invade Poland, right? And oh, yeah. And, and, and so so what's going on in the Baltic states? A lot of things. There is nation building. All of, uh, you know, uh, these countries have to build their entire infrastructure from as nations from scratch. So they build school systems. And they figure out how to spell in Lithuanian. Lithuanian did not have standardized spelling. Oh, hold on. Question to, to yeah. that. Sorry, just an off topic, because considering I'm just going to be throwing random stuff at you all this time. 
Um, Lithuanian is, how do I even phrase this question? The Lithuanian language has always been there. Did they have to reinvent literally everything from the language at this stage, from like the bottom? No, no, the language existed, but it had a lot of different dialects, a lot of different spelling conventions, and depending, uh, and there were a lot of, dare I say, Germanisms in the spelling, or Polishisms, depending where you were, because uh, because there's this funny little place, we call it Klaipeda, but for many, uh, it was called Memel, uh, and it was part of Germany for, it's the easternmost outpost of East Prussia. Uh, but for that entire period of 1795 onward till independence, uh, it was really where the uh, where the publishing industry was in Lithuanian language because it was under German control, and the Germans had you know, freedom of the press. So there was this whole thing about you know books being printed in Lithuanian smuggled in because the Tsar was literally trying to get rid of the Lithuanian language. So you got an existing Lithuanian literature from say the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. With a lot of German spelling conventions in it, and the German's not so popular by 1918. Uh, also, there's a war with Poland, so you know I have a Polish spelling of my surname, and that, you know. Uh, you oh know, no! How dare you? So yeah, the, and also that you know, for a small country, there's still quite a distinct regional dialect. So they standardized the they standardized the language, they standardized the spelling, and adopted basically Czech spelling conventions there are lots of hot checks you know instead of the various polish or german conventions that were going on you know uh so they standardized that they standardized the orthography using using largely sort of a a czech sort of idea and the czechs had just done the same thing the czechs had gone through their own national renaissance and all that and had gone and sort of de-germanized their whole uh their whole language and that was considered really politically neutral you know nobody had any grievance with that um so there you have it. So these countries have to establish yeah, textbooks in a publishing industry and, you know, well, everything. When the huge thing is land reform, uh, because, you know, much of the land was tied up in these big landed estates, particularly in Estonia and Latvia, still belonging to these old German, you know, families. And so breaking up the estates and giving giving land to the uh, to, to, to smallholder farmers uh, is is a big thing. More that's in fact more politically significant than you know boundary shifts. Yeah, so a lot of stuff is going on here. But then we get the Great Depression. All right, and, you know there was a worldwide depression, and these are not wealthy countries, and these are countries still largely basing their their economy on agriculture. Uh, and you know the economies tank like they tanked everywhere, um, and so you get this you get one you get one or another variety of strongmen basically taking over the government in 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 all three uh and interestingly enough these strongmen don't come out of a you know a fascist nationalist sort of ideology uh in fact in all th- all three countries there were there were small fascist movements that these particular strongmen uh Konstantin Pas was the strongman in Estonia uh Omanis was this guy in Latvia and Antonis Matona was the guy in, uh, in 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 Lithuania. They all viewed these crackpot right wing groups as far more of a threat than actually communists. They had more or less run all the communists out during their uh, their uh, 
successful, you know, escape from the, from, from uh, during the Russian Civil War. So the communist parties were very, very small in these things. The, these, these regimes viewed the ideological far right as an existential threat. And actually, you know, uh, Lithuania goes down as the one country to actually lock up Nazis in the pre-war era. Uh, 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 because Nazis were agitating in, in Klaipeda because the Nazis wanted Memel back. And eventually the Nazis did take Memel back. Uh, but, you know, so. Listen, have... hold on. Before we, before we go on further, because we can, we've got so, so much to talk about. I think we should really come back and revisit some of yeah. these stuff. Uh, yeah, we could, we could do a whole new, we could do a whole interwar era in Poland at some point. Let's get on to the good stuff. Let's exact. I was about to say, let's yeah. get on to the good stuff. So, uh, all right. Let's so, talk about the um, the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. Yeah, this is where it all starts to go bad because you know Hitler and Stalin signed this Devil's Alliance to take a turn from our friend uh, uh, Roger Roger Morehouse, uh, and they divide they divide this whole bit of Europe between them from Finland all the way down to you know the Black Sea. They they come up with this dividing line. Uh, and it's, um, it's one that, you know, takes a number of countries completely out of existence. It takes, it takes Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Poland, totally out of existence. Um, and but, um, so for example, that there's, there's a secret protocol. for the Yes. Program. The secret protocol literally draws this d- dividing line. Um, and, and this is at a point where, you know, yeah. You got to remember, for context, for our readers, the secret protocol was uh, drawn up uh, nine days before the the, the Nazis uh, ride into Poland, and of course, seventeen days later, the Soviets ride into Eastern Poland. Now, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania don't know of the existence of the secret protocol, and they're really, really, really hoping that they they can be like Sweden, for example, or at the time Denmark or, or Netherlands, all these countries that had ridden out as neutral in the First World War. Like, okay, well, this is all bad. Um, not only that, it's briefly actually very good for the Lithuanians because the Soviets give the Vilnius region to uh, to back to Lithuania. And so Lithuania has got its old capital again. And this is something Lithuanians don't like me putting. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get hate mail for this one. It's because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that Vilnius is now the national capital of Lithuania and not a, you know, a quaint, yeah, provincial backwater in northeastern Poland. Yeah, so there you go. Um, oh, how dare you say facts? Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, so so you've got almost immediately after this, you know, Stalin starts his war with Finland, and that scares the crap out of the uh, Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians. Uh, because they don't have the size of military or the strategic depth to fight off the Russians like the the Finns were doing, and it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a done deal that the Finns were going to win that to a stalemate. Uh, it, it could have gone either way. Not only that, lots of Estonians went and volunteered. Okay, uh, so moving forward a little bit in June of nineteen forty, what's going on in June of nineteen forty? Hitler is literally parading down the Champs Elysees in, in France, having taken over much of Western Europe. The Dunkirk invasion is all that. Britain stands alone. All this stuff, you know. Auschwitz uh, is opened. Sorry, had to throw it, that one in. Yeah, yeah. And so, while the re- attention of the rest of the world is uh, diverted uh, through a relatively rapid but complicated chain of events, um, the the 
the Soviets lean on the Baltic states and lean on them hard enough that they basically crumble and get occupied. It's 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 not really fair to call it an armed invasion, although there are one or two situations where some 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 units of the military did actually resist. It was it was this they just got rolled. And uh you know the president of Lithuania did flee, ended up in of all places, uh Cleveland, Ohio. Uh uh Lith- much? Well, you know, oh, uh, he should you know, anyway, there's a whole story about him and you know, anyway, so he 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 fled. Uh the uh the the Latvian and Estonian uh, uh leadership ended up in the gulag. Um but basically rigged elections were staged. Uh these elections you know were were staged very, very quickly with an amazingly 120% voter turnout in some districts and you know uh, the usual uh, 120 yeah. hold on should we put this in quotation marks yeah 120% voters turnout wow yeah, hold on yeah, yeah. And, the and there same was usually, thing in Poland <laughs> yeah, there was usually only one candidate for every district a few cases Estonia with Estonia's bench actually get other candidates on the ballot it really confused things oh god <laughs> but so so these national people's governments were formed and the, basically the only thing these people's governments did was uh you know meet meet and vote to be annexed into the Soviet Union so all of a sudden these countries disappear again it becomes the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic and the Latvian SSR and the Estonian SSR uh and so and it happens very quickly if you if you have been bonked on the head and, and were you know, unconscious in a hospital bed in Countess on the, I don't know, the 30, uh, the, the 31st of May, 1940, and you woke up a month later, you woke up in a totally different world. So what was it like? What was the occupation of the Baltic states like for them? It was really bad. It was horrible. It was as bad as you can think. Uh, first of all, um, lots of lots of people just started disappearing. Okay. Can you hear the word gulag? Gulag. Yeah, yeah. Well, lots of people disappeared. Um, and so at first it was like newspaper editors and large owners of businesses and politicians. uh, Horror, horror! They're targeting the intelligentsia. Yeah, Uh, officers of rank of about major and above. Uh, you know, there's a whole process by which the, uh, the 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 three militaries, which were not that large were being integrated into the Red Army. So lots of officer, uh, lots of lots of Soviet officers got brought in. Junior officers and, and enlisted men were kept in the army. Uh, but the, the, uh, the senior leadership, you know, all disappears. Some old ones are actually left left out to retire. Um, the press, you know, press, religion, uh, the economy is all basically rapidly Sovietized. OK, uh, there there, there isn't a rapid collectivization of agriculture in the rural areas because that actually takes time. Okay, uh, there's talk of that, and there's talk of busting up a, a, up so, some of the larger land holdings and things like that. And a lot of things are in process, but everybody can kind of see where the trajectory is going. Okay, and then comes the first big wave of deportations. Okay, uh, and the timing of this is particularly important. Uh, this huge wave of mass deportations with, I mean, uh, many tens of thousands of people locked up, put on, put on railway cars, you know, usually cattle cars and taken, 
uh, taken east, not just to Siberia, but places like Kazakhstan and uh, north bits of Russia that technically aren't Siberia. We used to, we all say Siberia, but you know, now, technically it's not correct. There was a lot of other bad places in the Gulag that weren't just Siberia. Um, and so that happens uh, in June of 1941. Uh, now, Obviously, there are people that don't like this, okay? And so there is early organizing of resistance. Uh, and so the early resistance stuff is not what you would call the sort of big arm partisan movements. Uh, it's, some of it is really amateurish. It's student groups meeting and writing manifestos. And guess what? They all get locked up, <laughs> okay? Uh, there's a lot of stuff like that. There is some underground press going on. Um, there is also... You know, a lot of people trying to flee. There are a lot of people, particularly from Latvia and Estonia. Uh, so some pe some people really do try to flee while the borders are open. Latvia and Estonia have far more coastline, uh, giving them access out on the Baltic Sea. The Lithuanians' coastline is not very big, so it's harder to get out uh, uh, get out uh, by sea. Uh, and now we we get these fragmented sort of resistance movements starting to work themselves out, uh, starting to do things like hide guns and things like that, because all three of the countries had uh, basically reserve components of the military. Uh, there was this thing called the Keitzelit uh, in Estonia. Uh, there, there was uh, In Latvia, there was the National Guard. Uh, in Lithuania, there was this thing called the Rifleman's Union. These were all state-sponsored paramilitary movements that were quite dispersed. Uh, and the Soviets didn't easily get a handle on these things because they were well dispersed so a lot of rifles and stuff got squirreled away all right uh and so what happens in this exact week that these deportations are happening it's late uh, yeah, late june of 1941 the germans turn up okay <laughs> all right at the exact point at which everybody's outraged and let, basically fearing for their lives and wondering if they or their friends or their neighbors or their you know, brothers or sisters are going to get stuck on a on a railway car off to some unpleasant place. Now, an interesting fact is one of these groups that was formed as a, as a resistance cell uh, was formed in, of all places, Berlin. And this is slightly... Wait, yeah, the Lithuanian activist front was being run in Berlin. Uh, and the Nazis clearly tolerated it because I think they understood. I mean, the Nazis pretty well figured out that, you know, well, you know, these guys are going to be useful, uh, uh, causing hell in the enemy rear. Um, and there was this, there, there was this guy, Kazi Stirpa, who was, had been the, uh, had been the defense attache for a long time at the Lithuanian embassy in, uh, in, uh, in, in Berlin. Uh, Pre-Nazi era, he had very good contacts in the Weimar era. He's, he had a lot of military contacts, and importantly, he had contacts with the Abwehr, the German military intelligence. Uh, and that's an interesting thing. You say, oh, Schirpa was a Nazi agent, and then you start looking at the history of the Abwehr. The Abwehr is actively plotting against Hitler during much of this. So it's a, it's, I'm not saying it's nuanced. I'm just saying it's complicated and messy, Okay. Uh, there were so there there the the Germans, particularly German military intelligence, was conducting liaison with with these embryonic uh, national resistance movements in all three uh, all three countries. That's not to say that these things were German fronts; they really weren't. 
the the Lithuanian group was very much still you know run out of Kaunas and had this overseas wing that was partly in uh, partly in Berlin and partly in Bern, Switzerland. Uh, and there was lots of arguments because it was a broad front. It was trying to represent every single Lithuanian political party, and they all hated each other. Um, well, that's smart, isn't it, really? Oh yeah, it's you know these government exiles. You know they get. <laughs> I mean, that's why the Home Army in the end uh, in the end kind of like formed in, into one because yeah. having all yeah. of these factions just becomes impossible yeah. to be able to monitor yeah. everybody. So what you what you get uh, what you get is immediately, uh, however. Something was clearly cooked up and ready to go because before the sunset on the first day of the invasion, the Lithuanians are already revolting. Now, my mother's father would say, well, you Lithuanians, you've been revolting for a long time. But there was there was a big, big uprising in Lithuania, primarily in Kaunas, which had been the provisional capital, uh, but elsewhere, too. Um, and this uprising clearly caught the Soviets by surprise just as much as this as the as the german invasion did uh and this this uprising there were there were uprisings further north in latvia and estonia uh they took a little bit longer to to crystallize uh but also it took the german military more time for them to get get there and so the but the lithuanian uprising Basically declares its own re declares the republic, declares a provisional government, which only lasts for a few days because the Germans say, yeah, no, um, having a Lithuanian government really isn't in our plan here, guys, and end up locking some of them up or telling them to go home or, in some cases, basically drafting some of the partisan units as police battalions, which becomes problematic later on because they get drafted then into the SS, um, and there are there are some really bad instance of pogroms because almost immediately uh these ss guys and gestapo guys start turning up and they start issuing out really really awful anti-semitic propaganda to these provisional you know, provisional units and one or two of them start to take it seriously a lot of them don't but there are some massacres of jews that happened in in in, in, in the 1941 uprisings and it's pretty pretty grim stuff uh but Basically, you know, the stereotype is that these Baltic peoples greeted the Germans as liberators. Um, you know, some did. What I think was an awful lot of people were optimistic that a German invasion was going to be like 1914, 1915. Because you know what? When the Kaiser's army turned up in that part of the world, it was actually a very good thing for the Baltic states. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't illegal to publish in Lithuanian anymore. Uh, the you know the Kaiser, the Kaiser era World War One occupation of the Baltic states basically let people get on for things and basically let local government happen uh, and for the first time in hundreds of years. And so I can see I can see the perspective there because yeah. if you're being oppressed by one and another comes in and goes right okay here you go here is your freedom here is yeah. for you to behave the way you want to do but hey you know we're still going to draft some of your people yeah. and and whatever yeah. you. Even though I don't agree with it, I'm just going to yeah. underline this before somebody takes my words out of context. Even though I do not agree with this, yeah, yeah, and 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 the the, the German occupation was bad, uh, but the German occupation wasn't taking the average peasant or average urban worker and at least not right away shoving them in railway cars. Okay, uh, but 
the German occupation was extremely bad for the people that the Nazis wanted to exterminate, which was the Jews and the, and, and the Romani people. Yes. Uh, everybody talks about the Jewish Holocaust. Uh, a lot of people forget to talk about the, the, the Romani. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so uh, they they were even more effectively eradicated in the Baltic states than uh, than, than than Jewish people. Uh, well, this is why, if you look at the statistics in Auschwitz, mm-hmm. the only people that tended to arrive that are from the Baltic states mm-hmm. are resistance fighters. They're the only ones. Yeah. You have no Jews coming from, or Rome or Sinti coming from those areas at all because they've been eradicated there. Well, yeah. Yeah. And m- much of the eradication of the, uh, of the Jews during this Nazi occupation was... Einstein's group, and they, you know, these people were shot. They didn't make it to the camps. Uh, you know, there's, and so, and it happened quite early on in the in the in the in the, uh, in the, in the um, occupation, 1941-1942. Uh, so somebody who somebody who collaborated with the Nazis in 1943 uh, started collaborating in 1943. It's hard to pin them to killing any Jews because the Jews were mostly dead by then. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a rough time. Uh, and so the Germans set up this thing called Ostland. That was their, their, that was their province. They're sort of their, the, the Baltic and Belarus, it was three Baltic states in Belarus, their equivalent of the general government, really. Uh, they did, they did have local puppet administrations, which basically, you know, did local government. Um, and that's when they started hoovering up the, 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 Handfuls of local sort of, you know, fascist and fascist adjacent people, plus the usual opportunists. I should say that the collaboration works both ways uh, in this, in that rather a lot of Baltic peoples fought on, in the Red Army. OK, so if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to say, well, the, you know, the, the, the Baltic states were, you know, Nazi collaborators. Well, they were also Soviet collaborators. And so yeah, and also. So much of this so-called collaboration was either heavily influenced by propaganda or just out and out conscripted or people had a choice. It's all right. Uh, forced labor in Germany or join the join this uh, self-defense battalion that we're going to throw yeah. in front of the army. So there's a lot of that going on. And yeah. so it's, messy, it's a messy time. It's and not it's a, black and white. And people no. need to think when when talking about these subjects in the Second World War, it's simple. You had, you know, people had a choice. Sometimes people didn't have a choice. And yeah. not that I'm saying this is all example. Obviously, I use Poland because that's that's my field. But sometimes people were given that choice of we either send you to a concentration yeah. camp, or we massacre yeah. your family, or you collaborate for the Gestapo. Now, yeah. not that I say that I condone whatever decision they made. Yeah. But put yourself yeah. in that position. That's yeah. what I'm telling yeah. my listeners. Put yeah. yourself in that position. Hmm. Yeah, and so there, 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 there's it's a mess. It's a messy time where people had no good decisions and only a buffet of bad decisions, and it was hard to tell on the face of it which of these bad decisions was worse. Um, and this heavily affected the partisan resistance. The partisan resistance is going on. Uh, it is largely because you know the first the first wave these 1941 uprisings uh, get pretty well squashed. Okay. Um, and some of these units get co-opted into 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 German service. Where also should say desertion is rife on all sides of this. So just because somebody got somebody served in one unit doesn't mean that necessarily they are a war criminal or not. Because 
they may have deserted shortly after. So there's a lot of desertion going on. There are people who fought on every side of this battle. I mean, literally, there are there is there there are there are situations where the same person fought in basically every army here. <laughs> okay, um, and so what you get, but also you get this. The, the, these resistance movements, and I, I, I do have to speed this up because we, we are using a lot of time here. No, do you know what? I think our listeners would quite appreciate we'll keep going. to stop at the Soviet invasion again. Yeah, we'll do a part two. And we'll do a part two because yeah. okay. this is quite interesting and so, so, I think so, it's important. So, so what you get, what you get is a you get you get uh, fragmented resistance movements. Uh, movements uh, much of what they're trying to do is to try to get in touch with their 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 people in the West because you know these countries had embassies and emigrate groups elsewhere, uh, particularly in Sweden. So there's fragments of, if not formal governments in exile, informal ones. And so there's a lot of well, what do we do? Uh, also. You know, in 1941, 1942, you know, you could you could be easily convinced by Nazi propaganda that Nazis were going to win, and this thing was was this thing was going to be over soon. Uh, but by 1943, you know, it was pretty obvious it could go either way. By the end of 1943, uh, you know, Baltic peoples are pretty like this is these Nazis aren't going to last very long, and the, and, and 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 the Soviets are going to come back. So there's an awful lot of We've got to be in this for a long haul. We've got to wait because the, the, these these Soviets are going to come back and they're not going to, they didn't like us before. They're going to pick up where they left off. Uh, so there is a lot of what I would call fake collaboration in that in all three countries, a lot of these territorial defense units were set up at 43-1944, uh, which, which were set up by the German army largely. Uh, to basically be cannon fodder to stay behind, but Baltic people were like, you know what, uh, they they're actually going to feed us and give us warm clothes and give us weapons, and so there was a lot of there was a lot of opportunistic enlistment to basically get get a week's worth of rations and three hand grenades and a rifle and disappear again. There are instances in Latvia of the same guy under twelve different names. Uh, yeah, enlisting twelve different times and running off with twelve rifles. <laughs> so uh, there was that going on. Um, I'd also I'd also say in the context of the Holocaust, which is going on, there was also Jewish partisan groups, particularly in Kaunas and and Vilnius. Uh, so we must not forget the Jewish partisan units. There's some excellent books on that. Um, the, the the Jewish partisan resistance doesn't figure as much further north. I should also say I'm not trying to belittle the Holocaust in Estonia, uh, but the pre-war Jewish community in Estonia was only something like a thousand people, uh, wow. and it was almost entirely eradicated. So, yeah. But we also have very heroic. We have heroic uh, efforts to save save Jewish people. Uh, there are 924 Lithuanians named in the Righteous Among the Nations at Yad Vashem, and there's 138 Latvians. Uh, only three Estonians, but one of them is, <laughs> you got to read that book, quite a, quite a, quite a tale, that guy. Um, and so... Can I just throw something else in here? Talking yeah. about the Righteous Among Nations, there, yeah. during the invasion, wait, let me get this right, hold on, let's stick this in my head. When the Germans invaded Poland and then the Soviets invaded, a lot of Jews fled from the German section mm -hmm. 
into the Soviet-occupied section. Yes. And they managed to get out through Lithuania yes. before the Soviets came in. So a yes. lot, I think, were also involved in that with helping and being yes. able to falsify passports to help oh, yes. people escape when they and had inter- time. Interesting enough, uh, there was a Japanese diplomat, Sugihara. He was the, mm. basically the one Japanese diplomat in, in Kaunas. He issued, uh, he issued visas to uh, you know, several thousand people. Uh, and, and this is a point where you know, the Soviet Union is not... Uh, has uh, the Soviet the Soviet Union hasn't rolled in? So we're talking about you know, late nineteen thirty nine, early nineteen forty, and so lots of these Jews actually transit across the Soviet Union, the Trans Siberian Railway, and uh, to Vladivostok and get on boats to 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 uh, to Shanghai. All right. So with these Japanese Incredible. transit visas, yeah. But also there was this other guy. Uh, it's mentioned in Morehouse's book, the Dutch Consul. There, the honorary Dutch Consul uh, was issuing these uh, these permits for people to go to Curacao in the uh, in the uh, in, in the in the in the West Indies. So yeah. Uh, also, I mean, there were there there were there were there were honest to God, you know, efforts to smuggle Latvian Jews out to uh, out to Sweden uh, because uh, on Latvia's not inconsiderable coastline, there was that going on as well too. Uh, there was a there was an order of uh, Polish nuns in in Vilnius that was quite active in smuggling weapons into the uh, into the into the into the Vilnius ghetto. And there was a I wouldn't call it it wasn't an uprising to the same extent as the Warsaw ghetto, but there was a bit of a you know there was a bit of a uprising there, uh, and and basically a big breakout attempt. And uh, and some of these Jewish partisans managed to escape and end up effectively pairing up with. Soviet partisans, because that's the other story here. There's a Soviet partisan movement, and Soviet historiography likes to try to claim a sort of copyright on this phrase "partisan." You know, they refer to yeah. uh-huh. well, there's as like bandits and criminals and all that. They try to put a little trademark after "partisan." Um, the partisan, the Soviet partisan movement wasn't that big in the three Baltic states. Uh, but it wasn't non-existent either, and and as you probably know, and your listeners probably know, that that the the genesis of it was Soviet army units who were basically left behind in the you know trapped behind enemy lines as the as the as the as the Germans uh, as as the Germans advance, and so there were these pockets uh, pockets of and bands of you know, Soviet soldiers stuck in the woods and swamps and stuff like that. And some of them coalesced into resistance groups. And eventually the Soviet state decided, well, we're going to support this and we're going to airdrop supplies and we're going to smuggle more people out to them and all that. And there were some of these units active. Okay. Uh, honestly, some of these units really didn't get very well treated by their own side after the war because, you know, <laughs> uh, the Soviet state didn't like people that were very good at guerrilla warfare in their own country. <laughs> um but yeah, so so it's it's we have to fairly fairly state that this was going on too, uh, and so you 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 get this whole situation now where all of a sudden the war is not going the way the Germans want. So the Germans are starting to leave now. One of the things the Germans are doing is they uh, they, they are stripping all of their culture and history out of the Baltic, out of Latvia and Estonia because there had been a large Baltic German minority okay in 
in uh, in Latvia and Estonia, a little bit in in Klaipeda, also known as Memel. Uh, the Germans basically, to a man and a woman, bugger off west. Uh, they're not going to stay around for they're not going to stay around for yet another uh, uh, change in management. Um, and you get this. You get this interesting period of time, uh, particularly in Estonia, a little bit in Latvia. Uh, there, there becomes this hiatus where the where the where the Germans have effectively fled, uh, but the Soviets haven't quite turned up yet. So you get this interregnum, about a six-week window, a period of time where, in parts of Latvia and much of Estonia, lots of people have a golden opportunity to flee, and so there's this huge this huge exodus. Uh, because it's actually not from, from the North shore of Estonia to Finland, it's not very far. Okay. And it's not from the Western bit of, uh, of, uh, of Latvia. It's not that far, you know, uh, to, to Sweden. So you get this refugee, uh, movement also, uh, uh, and also you get, you get the guys who are the worst collaborators, you know, they know which they know, they, they know that they're facing the firing squad or the hangman's noose. Uh, the worst collaborators—they bugger off west with their with their with their German allies, okay. Uh, and so, leaving uh, underground resistance movements who have been basically biding their time, and also these territorial defense units uh, who have been set up as uh, you know as effectively a last line of defense uh, to await this uh, this this uh, you know, Soviet you know. Advance. The Soviet advance comes in fits and starts. And as we get to the end of the war, what you get at the end of the war, you get to May 1945. Uh, in May 1945, all of Estonia had been so-called liberated, pretty much all of Lithuania, but only about half of Latvia. The western bit of Latvia was the so-called Kauerland Pocket, which had been this army group of the German army that had basically been cut off and not allowed to retreat. Uh, and and so there was this large pocket of of German troops, of which some were actually, you know, Latvian units in Western in, in Western uh, in, in in Western Latvia. And so some of that became the basis of the uh, of the uh, of the resistance movements in, in Latvia. And so I think we're going to probably break this soon and we're going to go to the next stage of this in the second part, Kaz, part, or part two. So as as the war comes to an end. You've got, you've got various groups, uh, ranging in size from literally individuals who are basically just hiding out in somebody's barn, up to sort of what you know company size units, you know, hundred, hundred twenty people, you know, uh, hiding out in, in in forests and swamps. Okay, and I should also man, I should say that you've got this environment that is actually quite useful for partisan resistance because you've got. A lot of small farms. The small farms had not been collectivized and, and taken over by the Soviet state. Uh, or the few that had had been uncollectivized by the Nazis because the Nazis want, wanted agricultural production. They were using this place as a as a breadbasket, uh, and it's heavily forested. You know, uh, particularly Lithuania, but uh, it's but there's a lots of dense forest that you can hide in. So and and lots of smaller farms that can support a some level of a rural population that is, you know, you know, you know, hiding out. So you got the, and you've got this, you know, really 
soup of conditions that leads to, uh, you know, really actually a, an interesting an, an interesting uh, resistance movement, uh, which becomes known in all three of them by this more or less the same the same nickname, the Forest Brothers, and that's. Uh -huh. Yeah, and that's where we're going to get to in my in, in in the next podcast here. Exactly, I was going to say because I think I could just I could just leave you sitting here. I just I just I could just walk off and do some washing or something, and you yeah. could just run the whole podcast on your own. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could guess on for a long time about this, but you know, no, no, I, no. I, but I I think I think this is interesting stuff here, and yes. I think I think I think you're. Your, your listeners are going to like some of this stuff. And so we're, I think we're going to draw this to a close. And it, it's early 1945, and it's in the Baltic states, and the Russians are coming. Perfect. So just before we finish, because we are going to have a part two, because we need to have a part two, remind our listeners the name of your book. My book is called The Forest Brotherhood. And the uh, Forest Brotherhood, Baltic Resistance Against the Nazis and Soviets. Uh, Perfect. It's by C. Hurst and Company. It's available from all of your major online retailers. Here in the UK, you can order it direct from the publisher or Foils or Waterstones. Uh, pretty much the whole world will sell it to you on Amazon. We will get it in our bookshop because then you get a bigger cut. We get a bit of that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that pie. And that big shop that we're not supposed to talk about who may yeah. sue us don't get the biggest cut. So you want to no. support your local bookshops. That's yes. the most important thing. Yes, indeed. And every, anybody who really wants to buy an autograph copy direct, I'm willing to make uh, direct deals. You can find me on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on the new uh, Blue Sky, which is a sort of it's like the business class upgrade from Twitter. <laughs> oh, interesting. I might have to join myself. I might have to join. Dan, listen, it has been great, and we will definitely get you back on to do part two. Okay. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.